Welcome to the 195th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. For the second time on the podcast, I'm interviewing Mark Stevens, author of the Allison Coyle mystery series set in Colorado. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Mark Stevens, author of Trapline, a new Allison Coyle mystery novel set in Colorado. I interviewed Mark before on the podcast in episode 64, and I know from social media that Mark is a pretty devoted listener to this podcast. Mark, welcome back to the podcast. Jeff, thanks a lot for having me back. I'm excited to be here. Sure, sure. Well, um, can you read um, from your first uh, chapter of your new novel, Trapline? I would love to. Thanks a lot. Yeah, this is the first chapter, so I'll just dive right in. Here Great. we go. The aspen trees stood like students at a new school. Nobody wanted to get too close. The sun-washed lumberjack camp in a gold-green bath. Allison Coyle wished she had a camera, even better Allison wished she had the time and inclination to store and savor the thousands of killer shots she could have snapped over the years that she had basked in the seasons, particularly late summer and fall, in the flat tops wilderness of Colorado. You don't shoot pictures either, do you? asked Allison. What do you mean, either? said Colin. Well, I don't, said Allison, so you'd be either. You never did. The grove that marked Lumberjack Camp stood a quarter mile across an open meadow. They rode single file on the narrow trail, Allison on Sunny Boy and Colin on the ever-dependable Merlin. Not really, said Allison. A pocket-sized digital was back in her A-frame, but she couldn't remember the last time she'd used it. Plenty of mental photographs, some real prize winners. I need to figure out a way to download them from my brain, frame them, and enter the big money contests. If you figure that out, you might be a rich woman before you sell your first picture, said Colin. They were meeting up with William Solchuk, a businessman from Glenwood Springs. Allison reminded herself, William, not Will or Bill. He went out of his way to urge use of the full, full name. He had become a regular late season client and he had a knack for bagging trophy bulls. William Solchuk had called two days earlier and asked a favor. He wanted to come up to the wilderness with his daughter, Gail, who had turned 13 and was now ready, he believed, to learn how to hunt. He thought an hour or two of exposure with a real-life outfitter and hunting guide might rub off. When Allison had told them she planned to be up on the flattops, they agreed on Lumberjack Camp around noon. William would have three other friends in tow, all with teenage offspring. If all went well, they would utter their hi, how are yous, talk a bit about scouting for elk, and be on their way. Not in another place, but this place, said Allison. What? Not in another hour, but this hour, she said, turning around with the sure knowledge that he would be giving her a wacky look. She was not disappointed. He screwed up his face like she was speaking Greek. Happiness, she said. It's a Walt Whitman line, the leaves of grass guy. Today, it's a gift. Gifts are good, said Colin, playing along. Happy as those aspens in the sun, she said. A neat line of eight horses stood at the camp's hitching rail on the outer edge of the aspen grove. The trees are happy? Colin liked playing the backwoods hick. How could anything so beautiful not be happy, she said. It's impossible. The horses suggested humanity, but the grove looked otherwise empty. The fire ring consisted of uniform rocks the size of soccer balls. 
a 20-foot section of a well-worn fir tree formed the official camp sitting log. Allison dismounted at the same time as a childish squeal pierced the quiet and alerted her to a cluster, si cluster of pint-sized human forms on the far side of the trees. Apparently, the children have all eaten their parental unit, said Colin, climbing down from Merlin. We're next. He looked around, faux suspicion on his face. They were eight weeks shy of their second full year together. Allison still relished Colin's casual strength and boundless outdoor talents. His latest phase involved primitive hunting skills, stick throwing, snaring, and experiments with the atlatl, the prehistoric arrow-slinging weapon. Colin's Colorado roots ran deep. His mountain roots ran deeper. His middle name could be indigenous. I see no boiling pot of water unless they are carrying machetes in their teeth. I think we have a chance, said Colin. I'm already questioning the parenting skills of this man you call William, however. She rehearsed him on the mm in William, and he emphasized it. There were two boys and two girls, all in unsoiled hunting garb. Their serious expressions were laced with a hint of dread. Three went back to look at whatever they were watching, but the fourth, a girl with dirty blonde hair tied up in pigtails and easily the tallest among the four, greeted them with worried eyes. She had a long face, perfect patches of delicate freckles on her cheeks, and studded diamond earrings that looked real. Allison knew she lacked any expertise. Something about the girl reeked of plush bedrooms done up in girlish pink. A whiff of sweet perfume like strawberries hung in the air. Out here, wearing the, wearing the scent would have the same effect as running around in the woods, carrying a boombox on your shoulder blasting hip-hop. She wouldn't be sneaking up on any animals anytime soon. She reminded Allison of herself at that age. I'm Gail, she said, and I'm Allison, and this is Colin, said Allison, shaking hands. Gail's eyes were the kind of blue that would no doubt make men weep for decades to come. She might be 13, but her father apparently didn't object if she added three years or six with makeup. What's going on, said Allison, noting Colin's fixation. No doubt it had been many moons since he had spotted such a rare species as well-kept, upper-middle-class American female teenager, especially up close. Gail took a breath. She'd been holding something in. Being asked, being asked to use words required tears to accompany the narrative. They're up in the woods, said Gail. Her chin vibrated. Allison put an arm around Gail, who willingly took the comfort. They're up in the woods, said Gail, taking another run at maintaining composure. I was up there with my dad. We were, my dad, mushrooms. The sobbing hit full force. A body, said one of the two boys bluntly. bluntly nasty. And we all saw it first. Gail's sobs deepened, perhaps at the further indignation. Allison asked the other three times, uh, Allison asked the other three for their names, Sophie, Joey, and Henry. But Hank is better. He's on his back, said Hank, who stepped up with an air of casual indifference. I mean, his face is pretty gross and stuff, but from his chest down, I mean, it's gone. That's right. the end of the first chapter. So if someone listening hasn't heard about Trapline yet, how would you describe your new novel? Yeah, it's the third novel in the series. The first two were uh, Antler Dust and Buried by the Rhone. Um, and they all feature Allison Coyle, who is a, a female hunting guide in the Flat Tops Wilderness. And the Flat Tops Wilderness is the second largest wilderness in Colorado. Uh, gorgeous area uh, near Glenwood Springs, if Folks have been through Colorado and driven down the interstate um, through the canyon to Glenwood Springs. The Flat Tops is the entire 
huge section of wilderness to the north of Glenwood Springs running all the way up to Meeker. And Allison is actually uh, based on somebody I met up there years ago, um, a fantastic, uh, tough outdoor woman who uh, to this day still helps me with my manuscripts and makes sure that they're all um, got the as much of the detail possible as uh, make, make sure, making sure it's correct. Sure. Well, well, what is it about Alison Coyle as a protagonist that appeals to you for your novels? You know, um, well, I, from the minute I met the woman who inspired the Alison Coyle character, I, I thought I had had a, had the chance to develop something because um, she just ran against stereotype. I mean, you're pretty much in a guy's world. Um, most hunting guys, guides are men. Um, most hunters are men. There's certainly a growing number of uh, women who, who've hunted. And of course, women have hunted for, for a long, long time. I think even the, probably the old caveman stereotype is a bit of a stereotype. Um, women have hunted for years, but in general, it's a man's world. And uh, so the fact that she ran against stereotype and she was so enthusiastic um, about the outdoors, about her surroundings, about everything to do with um, how the wilderness sort of operated. I mean, this was her world um, really just got me excited about somebody who um, and, and in, in the case of the woman who inspired Allison and in, in Allison's case herself, they're both uh, people who started out in the city and have made their way into the wilderness and learned, and they've sort of adopted that as their home. They've, they've adapted themselves and they've adopted a new home. So that just the idea of a stranger in a strange land growing, you know, more and more familiar every year with the surroundings just uh, seemed to make for a good character. Sure. Well, I know that we talked about this in our earlier interview, but can you talk about the path that led you to writing uh, this mystery series? Sure. I mean, just real quickly, I've been writing um, fiction since 1983. Um, and just I, I worked on a project in the 80s. I had a, got a really good agent right out of the shoot. Um, six years later, after I finished that first book, it took me six years probably in the late 1980s, 89 or 90, I got an agent, actually quit a job because I was so um, optimistic about the chances of something happening with that. Nothing happened. Um, that agent, uh, after about a year or so of work, uh, we parted ways, which was fine. We wrote another project in the early 90s, um, actually was represented by John Grisham's agent for about a year, year and a half back in the early 90s. Again, lots of hope. Um, you know, there was a few days in there. I think my feet didn't touch the ground. Um, really had a lot of um, optimism again about the career taking off. Um, that was another standalone. Both of these first two projects were standalone projects, and just kept at it. I in the in the late '90s is when I met Allison Coyle, the, the woman who inspired Allison. Anyway, her name was Renee, and. Um, Wrote wrote the wrote that first novel, which later became Antler Dust after many years of work. Um, actually, wrote another standalone novel after I wrote Antler Dust, um, which is still on the shelf. And finally, found a small publisher in 2007 here in Colorado um, for Antler Dust. That book did really well. Um, and then when the second book came out, or when I realized that the Allison Coyle character seemed to resonate a little bit. I decided to write a second book. 
I was always somebody who sort of believed in standalone projects and not series, even though I've always consumed a lot of series. I just was having, I struggled to come up with the idea of um, throwing another murder at another character. Um, but now I'm over that clearly. But anyway, um, wrote another standalone book and then wrote the second book um, in the series Buried by the Rhone. By then, my first publisher had gone out of business. A uh, new publisher in Aspen decided to reprint Antler Dust and also brought up Buried by the Rhone in 2011. And um, guess what? Just this year, that publisher is now also gone under. And I have a new publisher, Midnight Inc., out of Minnesota, which has uh, picked up Trapline and actually um, gave me a two-book contract. So, And are they going to republish the first two? At this point, no, but no, they are available and they are available and out there. And, sure, uh, sure. Yeah. And, and how did you, how did you hook up if you don't mind my asking with Midnight Inc? Well, I uh, don't mind you asking at all. This is, I think one of the advantages of being a member of a writer's conference, uh, not writer's conference, writer's organization. Um, and then in this case, it's Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers and, Terry Bischoff, the wonderful uh, mystery line editor at Midnight Inc., acquisitions editor, is a frequent uh, face around Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers conferences here in Denver, which are in, which are big. And I'd known her and met her, um, seen her, didn't really know her. I couldn't say I, I knew her, but, you know, was somebody I'd wanted to talk to and uh, respected. And a friend of mine, Linda Hull, who is also um, a well-known author, in the more of the cozy side of mysteries, um, I had given her a copy of Trapline to just kind of take a spin through. And Terry, the acquisitions editor from Midnight Inc., was staying at Linda's house. Linda conveniently left the manuscript on her kitchen <laughs> counter, and uh, Terry picked it up and started reading it. So um, that a year later, Terry offered me an offered me a deal just based on her schedule, but that was the beginning of, um, of our relationship. And I was, I was thrilled. Sure. Well, you, 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 I wanted to circle back for a moment. You had talked about, um, these, uh, two standalones and, you know, working with, uh, um, John Grissom's agent for a year and, and all of the kind of ups and downs that, that went along with that. Um, how did it feel when the, when the first, uh, um, Allison Coyle novel was, was finally, published and you you had a copy of it in your hand of antler dust it was it was it's 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 exquisite um <laughs> <laughs> it's exquisite i i it was just um i have two wonderful wonderful children two two older daughters now um fabulous wife um you know i've had a lot of great moments in my life but um having at that point been writing fiction for 23 years before seeing something in print was pretty extraordinary. Um, you know, and then you, you suddenly enter another phase of your existence where you're a published author and, and there's a whole new set of things to learn and to do. And it, it propels you out into this world of, which I actually happen to love of going to bookstores and doing talks and, um, you know, it gives you a, a stronger reason to go out there and and talk about talk about your stories. And I think that's what kind of every storyteller wants is the opportunity to see how the stories go over. It's no different than pulling some people around a campfire and saying, hey, I've got something to 
to tell you, and hopefully you can keep them in suspense for half an hour or something around a campfire. But in this case, there's just that thrill of getting emails back or a note back or a phone call and the fact that they connected with a character or really liked the way the plot twisted or something like that. Just uh, it, it's a wonderful feeling. That's great. Um, I'm curious, did you ever go back to those standalone novels and pull out any of the things for, uh, and use any of the plot lines or, or characters for your Alice and Coyle mysteries? Um, no, not really. They're, not really. St they're still sitting there. I'll tell you one thing is I'm glad this is not, may sound kind of odd coming from somebody who was represented by in, in, and in fact, the first, first version of Antler Dust, I had an excellent agent, um, in New York, who is still there to this day. Um, fantastic agency. They, they are very well respected, but he couldn't sell it. But in, in, in all three cases, in the case of the first book in the 80s, the second book in the early 90s, and even in the case of the first uh, version of, of Antler Dust, uh, drum roll, please, but I'm really glad they didn't get published. They weren't that good. Looking back you know, at them now, I can't wait to go back to those two standalones actually there's three standalones that are still on the shelf and apply what i've learned since to those earlier stories um and and, and i'm curious can you can you um uh can you articulate what you feel like you've learned that that make the allison Coyle novels better than those early standalones you know, the, the short answer is almost everything. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the dialogue, the, the energy, the plot, the um, sharpness of the plot, the um, keeping momentum on the page, I, leaving more questions open, um, not being as um, kind of bogged down in some of the descriptive parts, um, trying to be a little more... Um, just, uh, I guess, deft or subtle and respecting the reader a little bit more. I, I think I have a tendency to want to grab the reader's hand and squeeze it tight and really show them everything. And um, that was kind of an earlier on tendency. And now I think I try to respect that the reader, um, and I, I really love what George Saunders, the great short story writer, has to say about this, that the um, reading writing and reading a book is sort of a contract between one um, writer and one reader. And it's that space in between that becomes um, sort of this magical space. And it's really just one-on-one -on -one relationship. So you have to respect that the readers bring a lot to the table. Sure. Well, have you found any challenges in writing a series of novels featuring the same protagonist, just in terms of like, uh, timeline uh, of her life, um, you know, uh, referencing information or plot lines from earlier, um, uh, from earlier novels, etc. Yeah, I always, I, I think I was very daunted by the prospect of writing a series for all those reasons, and everything you just mentioned uh, continues to kind of challenge me, um, especially keeping track of all the details. Um, and making sure that there's consistency there. Um, I really struggled with trying to imagine what it would be that I would throw at one, um, in this case, amateur detective, which she is. She's a hunting guide, but um, 
I don't know too many amateur folks out there who solve murders in real life. Uh, and, you know, of course, in the mystery genre, we just kind of accept this uh, notion and we love it. And mystery fans like myself, we we love it um, when our heroes go into to battle and um, and make the world a better place by playing uh, pseudo cop in a way. Um, so my biggest challenge was like, what kind of situations can I throw at Allison that are going to be somewhat realistic? And that word somewhat is in quotes. Um, mm-hmm. there, there's a conceit here that we just have to, I just kind of had to get over the conceit. So, um, but yeah, all the things you mentioned in terms of keeping things consistent, keeping the earlier books handy so I could check details to make sure that they were all flowing correctly. Um, that's not where my, I might, that does not make my brain a happy brain to try to keep track of all that stuff. Sure. Sure. Well, in the acknowledgements of Trapline, you mentioned your late friend, Gary Riley. Can you talk about Gary and the books that he wrote that you helped get published after his death? Oh, well, thanks. Thanks for asking about that, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, Gary, Gary was a huge help to me in uh, refining antler dust for final publication. Um, and he was a huge help in Buried by the Rhone. In fact, he planted the seed for Trapline. Um, one of the major plot points in Trapline was an idea that he planted to me. Gary was um, a guy I met in 2004 um, and easily one of the most amazing fiction writers I've ever met. And that includes many, many folks. Gary, um, who passed away in 2011 um, at the age of 62, actually wrote 25 novels in his lifetime, and he, he left all those behind. Um, here's a guy who uh, had one short story published in the Iowa Review in 1978. Um, that short story was later nominated and included in the Pushcart Prize Anthology in 1979. It was a short story, a sci-fi short story called The Biography Man. Gary had the storytelling bug like nobody's nobody else I've ever met. He spent, um, you know, three and a half decades writing novels, um, 11 of them in a series he based on his own life as a Denver cab, cab driver. He was a cab driver for 14 years, and he developed this fascinating character named Murph, uh, Brendan Murphy, a.k.a. Murph, who is an alter ego for Gary and presents to me one of the most unusual points of view about the world, um, which I can go into in a bit, but to make a long story short, and there is a lot to talk about with Gary Riley, um, he uh, left a will, which gave a friend of, friend and, and, and myself the, the permission to publish or start publishing these works. Um, as of this month, November 2014, we're going to be publishing our, the seventh book in Gary's legacy, the sixth in, in his series overall, and the seventh is a book we published earlier this year about his experiences in Vietnam. And um, the, the sixth book in the Murph series comes out um, this month. It's called Dark Night of the Soul. Um, and two of the previous books in this series have been Colorado Book Award finalists. And all have been on the Denver Post uh, bestseller list here in Colorado. He is um, Gary's Gary's legend is growing. His reviews are stellar. Uh, these are very funny, witty books about 
that present a very unusual point of view about the world. And um, anybody who wants a smile on their face and a, a fun read, um, I, I mean, I guess I'm in a good position to say, go read them. They're great. Yeah. Great. Well, that sounds good. Are you working on another Allison Coyle mystery now? I am. Uh, I just turned in the fourth uh, to my editor at Midnight Inc. Uh, I have not heard back from her, um, but the fourth book is is done in my mind. I'm sure there'll be changes, but uh, um, if, I, if everything goes well, it'll be out next year. Gotcha. And are you thinking about a fifth? <laughs> I am. I am. I've got the fifth is um, in the, up in the up in the head. Um, it's up in the up in the zone in my brain, trying to assemble a few different themes and ideas. Um, this third book, Trapline, deals with. I always try to look for themes, and and the Trapline deals with for-profit prisons and immigration. And even those are those are sort of city issues. And Allison's up in the wilderness. So I found, think I found a way to connect some some wrongdoing in the flat tops to some um, to, to those issues. Um, the next book will deal with some climate change and more back to more environmental issues. And I sort of have a theme for the fifth book starting to percolate. So we'll see. That's great. Um, what advice do you have for aspiring writers? I always love this question on your podcast, Jeff. I'm a big fan of your podcast. And, um, uh, I, you know, I would say, and everybody says, write, write, write. And I agree with that. You, you have to write. Um, and I've heard many of your other guests say this too, but get involved with local writers. And I don't think writers are joiners. Um, I certainly wasn't a joiner. My wife says, I've never seen you quite so active in any groups as Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers. Um, I'm very involved in Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers. I'm more and more involved in Rocky Mountain Mystery Writers of America. Great local chapter here. I'm involved in Sisters in Crime. Um, I think bumping bumping off, um, not bumping off, that's not a good choice of words, being around other writers, uh, bumping ideas together, you know, uh, shooting the breeze, finding contacts, networking, you know, not being super aggressive about it, but just getting to know other writers. How are you doing this? How are you doing that? Get into critique groups, you know, help others get their fiction better. They'll help you um, talk about your problems, talk about your issues, think through um, challenges, ask other people, how did you do this? And then you, there's just a nice energy to that. And obviously I think it was huge for me in terms of getting to Midnight Inc. It would not have happened had I not been involved with Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers. So anybody in Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, we have lots of members from even beyond our region out here who come out to the big conference every year and participate in RMFW. And it's just a great organization. So if you have anything near you, go find other writers and um, shoot the breeze. That's great. Well, are, are there novels or nonfiction books that you've read in the last year or two that made an impact on you and that you would recommend? Absolutely. Um, a, a couple of quick ones. Uh, the biography of John Updike by Adam Begley. Um, amazing writer, amazing biography. Read that earlier this year. It's just called Updike. Wonderful book. Uh, I, I love I love John Updike. I like all those kinds of writers like Philip Roth and Richard Ford. And um, it's a beautiful book about a guy who was determined to be a writer at the New Yorker by the time he was 13. John Updike knew he wanted to work for the New Yorker. 
went to the New Yorker, became a fantastic uh, reporter and short story writer, and then, of course, went on to an incredible career as a novelist and continued to write short stories. But I love that book and love the prof- profile of him. The other one I really recommend nonfiction-wise is Soldier Girls by Helen Thorpe. Um, a wonderful uh, account of what it's like to be a woman in the in today's um, army, and she goes. She follows three women who go to Iraq and Afghanistan, and it's a highly praised uh, book nationally. Great reviews in the New York Times, Washington Post. She's actually a Denver friend of mine, so true. Um, full disclosure there, mm-hmm. but it is a amazing book. If you have any interest in what it's like in today's military. Um, I just can't recommend that enough. Um, now, fiction. I wish I would really thought something through. I'll tell you what. I'm gonna I'm gonna promote another friend of mine, Warren Hammond. I'm in the second volume of his mystery sci-fi mashup. Um, the first book was called Cop K O P. The second book I just finished is called X Cop, and this is noir, absolutely gritty noir set in the future on a distant planet. Um, and every bit of it is could be set in L.A. of the 1940s. Um, you know, people recognize the noir kind of rules uh, about writing dark, um, dark mysteries will recognize everything. Um, fans of beautiful sci-fi, very imaginative details set in the future will enjoy, um, you know, kind of how the world that Warren Hammond built in, in, in cop X cop. And then the last book in the series is called cop killer K O P killer. And they're, I haven't read the third, but the first two were rocking. Well, those all sound good. I'll have to check those out. Well, well, finally, if someone is listening to this and they would like to learn more about you and your Allison Coyle mysteries, where can they find you online? Uh, writer, Mark uh, writermarkstevens.com. I'm on Twitter at writer Stevens and Allison Coyle. If you look her up, A L L I S O N C O I L has a Facebook page as well. Uh, Facebook.com slash Allison Coyle. I love to uh, meet people out there in the social media world too. Great. Well, again, I've been speaking with Mark Stevens, author of the Allison Coyle mystery series. Stevens' latest novel, Trapline, is in bookstores now, so go grab a copy. Mark, thanks for doing this interview, and thanks for being a supporter and listener of the podcast. Jeff, thanks for all you do for writers and uh, readers everywhere. You're amazing. Oh, thank you. Uh, it was great talking to you, and um, uh, I hope everyone checks out Trapline. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.